0: So we come to the end of the line and culminating quite naturally and suitably in this most profound of all of the shamatha practices according to the Buddha awareness of awareness and now we see from the the concise teaching of Penjana that we have Two approaches here, both of which are perfectly authentic, both of which work. And the first of these entails, as you'll recall, just immediately snipping, like a, like a gardener prunes or snips branches of a tree or who knows what, like, or in the little bonsai. Bonsai, snip, snip. As soon as something can, snip. So, like that. So, we know the the parable there, or the metaphor was like the sword that flicks away, that flicks away the arrow that's coming in. I know that if I tried that with a sword, I would be, oh, skewered. I would be just target practice. So what I would want would be more like a titanium shield, you know. And then the arrow comes and it's click, click, click. As soon as it comes, just deflect it. No big deal. Not I mean, whip it, but just. That would be better for me. I think I might survive. Yeah. (laughs) I think we just figured out what what he was in his past life. (laughs) So there it is. So there it is. But now here's something that's rather cool, and that is when a thought arises, you might recall, that's an affirmative entity affirmative entity, something that actually is present, right? Remember those? Affirmative entity, right? And it's something you can see, something you could perceive. And then as soon as it's there, you snuff it. And so it's almost like you leave a little hole where it was. Right? It was there and then it wasn't. Then it isn't. It was and it isn't. Because that's the whole idea of flicking it. And suddenly you have a vacuum. Right? An absence of that thought. But as I mentioned before, it's not an absence like, oh, now I'm just spaced out. Or, oh, now I have nothing to, to attend to. Right? This is a non, how do you say, a complex negation. Right? Very practical. So that epistemology sounds a little bit egghead, maybe a little bit theoretical or abstract, conceptual. But now, really, here, it can be very practical relevance. And that is, there's something that arises as you're sitting there, your awareness holding its own ground, and a thought arises and you just you flick it, tiniest bit of effort, very little, but a little. And then suddenly there's an absence of the thought. But you're not simply attending to a simple absence, a simple negation, right? Because this is awareness of awareness. So in that immediate, the thought was there, and then it's not. And then what's there in the absence? What fills the vacuum? And what's that? Tiram. Awareness, yeah. It's already finished, Alma. You have to go faster, much faster than that. I, I want to see you waiting like this. Yeah, there's a vacuum, an, an absence of a thought, but an immediate presence of awareness. It was there, but now that you flick the thought away, it's almost like they're unmasked. The awareness is always there, whether thoughts are there, whether dullness is there, excitation, agitation. Awareness is always there. When a thought arises and you flick it, then suddenly you have nothing going on except for what was already there. So in that absence of a thought, the presence of awareness becomes very vivid, naked, simple, unelaborated. That could be very useful. So it's almost like your thoughts in this practice are saying, There was a sound, but then there was immediate an absence of sound, right? And in an absence of sound, then you can see what's left, and that's awareness. So, you have your own built-in zokchan master. Instead of saying pet, 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 it says, "Oh, why do I have to meditate for so long? I'm so tired of this." <laughs> Except you, you get them like oh, then I. So it's much more interesting than pet pet pet. It's you never know what's coming up, but as soon as it starts to go, uh, 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 you have an absence of. Uh, uh. Very useful. Very useful to see awareness nakedly, when the thought gives you a target like a cyst, you pop it, and then there's just awareness left over. <coughs> Very useful that. So there's one approach. So you deflect all of the thoughts, but then you observe right there where they were—that absence and the presence in the absence—and the presence is just that sheer luminosity and cognizance of your own awareness. Welcome to your own awareness. Welcome to who you are. And then the other approach—the metaphor for that one being the duel between the archer and the swordsman—and then we have the, of course, now you know what I'm going to say. It's kind of familiar, kind of comfortable, isn't it? Or no, just kind I'm of going to say—the raven the raven. And now the thoughts come up. They arise, but you do nothing to impede them, nothing to deflect them, to snuff them out, nothing to prolong them. They arise, and you're present with them with no grasping whatsoever. They're just there. They're just arising in space. They're zipping through like they're in the wind, and they're just flying towards you. But now, as I was reflecting a little bit just before coming here, remembered a wonderful line from the Seven Point Mind Training from it stemming back to Atisha, where after making a reference to the preliminaries and in the old version of the text, making a reference to shamatha, and then he goes directly, in this, in this strategy, he goes directly to ultimate bodhicitta. He gets to relative bodhicitta only later, so it's quite just the opposite of the standard lamrims that have become prevalent throughout the whole Tibetan tradition. But no, he goes for ultimate bodhicitta first and then relative bodhicitta second. You remember? Right? And so there he is, and he's probing in above all into the empty nature of your own mind. And these these really these really sharp aphorisms. And so they're the and I, I won't elaborate on that right now, but they're the practices, these aphorisms, these one liner, these zingers to ascertain the empty nature of your own mind while you're on the cushion in formal meditation. But sooner or later, you're going to come off your cushion into the post-meditative state. And then his line, he's got one line for that, which is the transition from meditating on ultimate bodhicitta to venturing over into Donglen, the cultivation of relative bodhicitta, and then the display of relative bodhicitta. right? And that one line that's the bridge between the two is Tunsam Gyume Gyiburja so easy to remember in Tibetan. In-between sessions, act as an illusory being. In-between sessions, your way of viewing, viewing your own presence, and that includes your body, your mind, everything about you. As you're walking from here to the cafeteria, as you're gauging from this, that. But in-between sessions, as you're moving about, interacting with the environment and other individuals, you view yourself as if you were an apparition, a mirage. Right. Dream, a rainbow, reflection, but like an, like an apparition, like a ma- magical apparition, like a holographic display, that it kind of looks like a person. But there's no one there. just, just a matrix of appearances, but no one there, you know Very much like when you are lucid in a dream. And you see somebody else in the dream, and you know, oh, that looks just like, that looks just like Godot, that looks just like Claudia. But I'm dreaming, I, I know I'm dreaming, I'm lucidly dreaming, so although that looks, that looks just like Godot, there's nobody there. Even if I should go over and touch him on, the, t- him on the chest, yep, feels firm, that's just one more illusion. That's just part of this magical illusion. Gives the magical impression of there being some real substance there that I'm touching, but it's just a tactile sensation, and that tactile sensation is as empty As the visual impression. And the visual impression is as empty as if Godot says, Hi Alan, how are you today? It's just like an echo. An echo, there's nobody there, right? It's just the sound, but nothing behind it, no substance. And so there it is in a dream. The sounds are empty, the form is empty, the tactile sensation is empty. The form is empty, and the emptiness is form. Right? That's very clear in the dream, in a lucid dream anyway. But coming back to that, the conduct, the way of viewing reality, the way of comporting yourself in between sessions, according to Atisha, in this brilliant seven-point mind training, between sessions, just move about as if you're an illusion, as if there's really no one here. People may think you're really here, but that's their problem. You know, you know you're not. And why? Because you've looked. In other words, you're not just playing a game here you actually looked. Is there anyone really in here? Is there really an observer? Is there really an agent? Is there really some entity that is the referent of the word, in my case, Alan? Is there somebody in there? How big are you? As big as the body? What happened if I got amputated and got lost both legs? Then it's only half an Alan? Or no arms? Then just Mr. Stumpy, that less of an Alan. You know, but you look, and actually, have, because you have looked, because that's where he starts in this ultimate bodhicitta. You're looking, is there really any, in, anybody in there? And all you see are a bunch of empty appearances. And you say, well, okay, well, at least there must be a real mind here, right? I mean, I've got a mind, I mean, there's something here. My mind, yeah. And then you look for that, and it's a whole bunch of empty appearances an awareness, but the awareness has no identity, has no signature, it has no personhood, doesn't belong to anybody, doesn't own anything. It's just sheer cognizance and luminosity. That's about as anonymous as it gets. And so if you actually have some insight into that, the body is just a matrix of empty appearances, the mind is empty appearances, illuminated by something empty, and as for a referent of the person, nowhere to be found then it actually makes sense when you get off the cushion. Coming off as an illusion. So do that in this practice, coming back to this practice, this awareness of awareness. And so rather than having to feel there's anything to deflect, if there's no one behind the shield, if there's no one behind the shield, why do you put the shield down? And then wait for the arrows to come in And you say, ah, they all pass through. It's like shooting arrows at a rainbow, shooting arrows at a mirage. Go for it. Oh, I see, you're just as illusory as I am. Oh, this is fun. But you got up your sleeve. And you just hold your own ground without grasping, without any thought of having to deflect or avert or avoid or snuff out. Why? They can't strike anything. And there's nothing there from their side to be striking. So it's empty, empty. So you just rest in that and whatever comes up. But what the common ground is between the two approaches, the deflection with your titanium shield or your sword, or just letting them pass right on through, arise and then just rang. Release themselves. Like that. The common ground. The common ground is holding your own ground. Resting your awareness in its own place. That's the common ground. That's the core. That is the core. It's resting there. Or standing there. Straight. The Tibetan translation of the word rishi. Like Maharishi and so forth. Rishi is tang song, which means straight, straight. Tang song, straight, straight. Straight erect. Straight erect. So there you are. And whatever is coming in the second method, whatever is coming, it just arises, and it just evaporates. Arises, just evaporates. You don't need to do anything, and there's no need to do anything. They're empty, you're empty, so what needs to antidote what for what purpose? And the answer is not, not, not you, in a manner of speaking, to stand there. But here I love this old Midwestern aphorism. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. It's quite cute. If you, don't stand for it, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So if you're not standing, if you're not quite straight, resting in your own ground, if you bend, then you'll fall for anything. Happy thoughts, unhappy thoughts, hope, fear, craving hostility, then you'll be carried away by anything. Then you'll fall for anything and be swept away. But if you're holding your own ground, and the beauty of it is you're holding your own ground by holding on to nothing, you're holding on this way, hands open. Right? So, in this way the thoughts are disarmed. nothing to delight, nothing to trouble, because they're empty, and so are you. So they just arise and pass. But when you get into the swing of it, now as we're anticipating moving beyond this retreat, deepening the practice on our own in our various ways, there's something beyond that confidence that Lerab Lingba speaks of, of having that certainty, that intuitive certainty, that whatever arises, whether it's a host of māras or a host of angels, whatever it may be, they, from their side, can inflict no harm and they have no benefit to offer either. They're rainbows. They're mirages. What are they going to give? And What are they going to inflict? There's something and and then having that certitude, nothing here can harm me, but there's something beyond that. It's very, very explicit in the Mahamudra tradition in particular. So helpful. And that is when you get to that point where you see no harm, no harm, just hold your own ground without grasping, in that stillness that is what's left when there is no grasping, then there's something beyond that sense of invulnerability that nothing here can harm. And that is recognizing that actually in either of these two methods, either the one of, just as a skillful means, deflecting, deflecting, you know, just like, like a gardener who takes care of the what do they call them? The greens on a golf course. I just think they really have to be quite impeccable, especially if it's a really high-class golf course. Those greens should be really, really good. So if even little tiny, tiny weed crops up, oh, Willie the groundskeeper, he, he just books them right up. As soon as one little, they're gone, they're gone. So you're keeping the grounds, you know, the greens of your mind, keeping them completely free of weeds. Anything crops up, you just pull it right out, right? Maybe more aesthetic than anything else. But here's the point of that. And that is, as you settle more and more deeply in this practice, by either, either of the two methods of plucking them out or just letting them pass on through, either way, we move to another phase of the practice, another maturation, a point of maturation benchmark in the practice, where we actually see that the occurrence of these thoughts is an aid to your practice, utterly contrary to how they appear or are apprehended when you first set out, right? Or even maybe for eight weeks. Oh, no, another one. Oh, another one. Oh, give me a break. Oh, no, not more. I thought, when did the the nyam end? When did the rumination end? I want a break, right? Getting tired of them. Well, beyond that, okay, now invulnerable. Rise, don't rise, whatever, don't care. But beyond that is seeing that whichever of these two methods you're following, whichever one, That the arising of thoughts now actually is, you don't have to imagine it, it's simply true. The imagining of the thoughts, when you're practicing well, you're holding your your own ground, you're Rishi, you're the Rishi of your mind, right? The arising of thoughts is actually an aid to your practice. And how so? Because as you're resting there, loose, relaxed, relaxed, stable, clear, and the thoughts are arising, so let's, let's take the first one, where you deflect them. Well, the thoughts are not coming in homogeneously, and they're not of all the same grade or degree of coarseness, right? So as you become more and more still, less and less and less grasping, then you'll be detecting, with this increasing stability and clarity of awareness, you'll be detecting subtler and subtler thoughts that come up, really wispy little thoughts, little brief little sparks of thoughts, little vapors of thoughts that hardly even percolate into your consciousness they become subtler and subtler but as they arise from the coarsest down to the subtler and subtler and subtler you're right there you're right in the milliseconds of the present moment and whatever comes up be it ever so subtle or ever so brief there you are so ever so gently now it's more like tweezers or a little twig or a needle this this slightest deflection. But as you are there to deflect subtler and subtler and subtler mental events, what's happening to your mind? What's happening to your awareness? Exactly. Vividness. Yep, we're already finished. We're all finished. That's it. Just the whetstone all over again. It's the whetstone all over again. And that is your vividness. It's just getting, you know, razor sharp as you deflect the subtler and subtler and subtler that none of them pass beyond your vision. None of them pass by unnoticed. This means you're getting razor sharp. And thanks to what? Thanks to just enjoying hanging out in the sheer luminosity and cognizance of awareness? No, it's thanks to those thoughts that are coming up. They're providing you with a whetstone, the sharpening tool. And the same, exactly the same is true if you're following Strategy number two, of just allowing them to pass and allowing them to just self-dissolve, release themselves, but you're there all the way through. You're present right there in the immediacy of the present moment, and as they arise, subtler and subtler and subtler, there you are with no reactivity, no response, but you are atten- you are noting them, as Machi says, you are noting them, and what you're doing is noting subtler and subtler and subtler. Same answer. The thoughts are arising as your aid, they're actually arising as an indispensable aid. You need them, right? So now if these thoughts are arising, whichever the two techniques you're following, if they're arising and they are indispensable for you to sharpen and sharpen and sharpen the clarity of your awareness, which means you're unveiling, unveiling, unveiling the natural luminosity of your own awareness. Then really, if you're if you're a devout Buddhist, you can say, ah, but all these thoughts, and whether they're happy thoughts, unhappy thoughts, virtuous or unvirtuous, neutral, whatever, they're all blessings of the Buddha. They're all blessings because they're just what you needed, just what you need to go deeper, deeper in this practice. It's like it's like the Buddha's, oh, it's too quiet and sessile mind. Let's throw some thoughts at him. That will help. Let's throw some really nasty thoughts at him. That'll that'll wake him up. Okay, you throw some nice thoughts for a while. No, there was more nasty thoughts. And then, oh, biggest blessing. Right, so kind. So, as you're just sitting there holding your own ground, and you see the thoughts coming up, really nasty, mada thoughts. Ah, smile. You're on candid camera. Welcome. Not as if you want more, but just each one that comes up. Ah, good. Thank you. So then you can always be happy in your practice. Because whatever comes up, if nothing comes up, that's nice. We already knew that. When something comes up, they're coming up to help you. Helping you develop your stability. Stability is what? Continuity. Continuity happens. Well, this, it's checking, checking, checking. It's like that. The Zen master who comes with everybody sitting very, very proper posture in a Zen, you know, a Zen meditation hall, and walking up and down the aisles. And what does he do? He's got this nice stick, walking behind you, and then you get it right here on the soft part, right here. So no injury, no bruises, no broken bones, but you get it right there on the soft, the soft spot. Thank you, Roshi. That hurt. <laughs> Checking for continuity. Checking for continuity. But, you know, Roshis are not so easy to come by. Whereas your thoughts, they're right you're at your beck and call. They're like Roshi, <coughs> whacking you on the shoulder. Were you there, or were you wandering? So those thoughts coming up, very helpful also for stability, for continuity, flow. It's a little midterm exam. And you never, a pop quiz. Every thought that comes up, like pop quiz. Were you there or not? Then you know. But if they didn't come, you'd just be going, Oh, what a day for a daydream. <laughs> you know, just kind of hanging out. Oh, meditation is so much fun. It's really relaxing. I like it. <laughs> so, when you can come to befriend Everything that arises in your mind, equally, equally. Coarse, subtle, friendly, not friendly, happy or sad, equally befriend them all. Get used to that, familiarize yourself with that, and then you come off the cushion and you go out into the world that you'll be going out into on Friday or Thursday. Then you'll be meeting, I think, much more diverse group of people than you're finding here. Here it's pretty much one friendly person after another friendly person after another friendly person, right? When was the last time you saw one of the staff being really snarly mad and mean and nasty? You know? Doesn't seem to be part of their repertoire. But I've heard it's true that if you step outside of the mind center, there are such people. Could happen. Right? <laughs> In which case, if you've gotten used to maintaining that quality of awareness, that even the mean and gnarly thoughts, appearances, and so forth, that come to the mind, and you're just able to welcome them all in that loose, relaxed way, arising as an illusory being, then when you're you're out there in the rest of the world, and these individuals appear in your substrate, because that is where they're appearing, after all, They don't exist in your substrate, but the appearances, they're in your substrate, they're not anywhere else, and they're arising there. If when you're out about in the world, driving, working, shopping, doing everything you need to do, if you are really sustaining with mindfulness that sense of yourself being an illusory being, then everybody you encounter in the world, pleasant and unpleasant, coarse and subtle, virtuous and not virtuous, people welcome them all. You can welcome them all. Oh, you're here to help me with my practice. Ah, you're here to help me with patience. Thank you. Oh, you're here to be really kind to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're here to abuse me. Oh, thank you. Let's see if there's a target or not. Oh, there is. Oh, that's helpful. I see there's still a target. I'm not quite as illusory as I thought. <laughs> so one's a great preparation for the other. Meditation and preparation for everything else. So Gesarapten, he was really a warrior. If he hadn't become a monk, if he'd stayed back in Kham, he was one tough guy. Gesarapten, he was tough. If he'd stayed back in Kham, back on the, the ranch, I would, if, if he'd just been, you know, just a bit different temperament, personality, I think he would have been one of those Kampa, Kampa gorillas. He is tough. He's really tough, not unkind, not mean, nothing like that. But just tough. His name, Rabden, means really firm. He was. He was. So he became an outstanding monk, geshe, contemplative teacher, marvelous, and always. But if he'd stayed back home, I think probably I wouldn't be surprised. When he saw you know all the destruction and so forth, I can imagine him being one of the guerrilla leaders, and scaring the crap out of people. <laughs> He's really tough. And he often used the military analogies. He liked them. Shantideva did too. So he was following Shantideva. But he liked the military analogies. He had his his squadron of young western monks there in Switzerland. I trained with him before that in India. But he said, as he was training us in meditation, he said, look, the training I'm giving you now, when you're on the meditation cushion, I'm teaching you, you practice. When you're on the cushion, then this is like basic training. This is like boot camp. You're learning how to do, shoot all your weapons and so forth. You're learning how to be a soldier. You're learning how, but it's, it's kind of safe. I mean, it's boot camp. So There's no live ammo, or if there is live ammo, they're making sure they shoot above your head, right? It's boot camp. But it's when you get off the cushion, off the cushion, that it's imperative. The whole point of being on the cushion is so when you get off the cushion, you can bring the full wisdom, the full arsenal of your practices, your wisdom, your skillful means, your four measurables, your three methods your samatha, your vipassana, four applications of mindfulness, Maha mahamudra, guru yoga, you're coming in like just, you know, like Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> you come out into the world and say, look, I've already been through boot camp. You want to play? <laughs> And if, when you get out into the world and you're meeting all the kind of different people, if you let your old emotions, all the patterns come up, as if you were never on the meditation cushion, he said, then you're like a soldier who, in, in basic training, learning how to shoot the gun, throw the hand grenade, use the knife and all of that. And then when he gets out on the front lines and he sees the enemy, he goes, and, and, and throws weapons in, this, in the sky, and, says, and runs the opposite direction. <laughs> What was the point of the boot camp? You know? So you could throw away your weapons to see see the enemy? You know? So you can imagine. He was quite a tough general. Very good, though. Hola, so. Ready to get back to boot camp? Let's practice. Questions or comments, observations about this practice? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Miles first.
1: Um it's about this practice and distinguishing it from settling the mind mm-hmm. in its natural state, which the two seem to have become increasingly Intertwined as the retreat's gone on in, in your descriptions. Um,
0: Benjamin Butcher's description. I'm just the messenger. Yeah, you're yeah, yeah. quite right. Yeah.
1: So? So now I'm wondering, I've sort of lost a bit of the confidence I had when I was in the space of the mind. Distinguishing is a very simple question, distinguishing between the space of the mind and knowing that you're in awareness of awareness and knowing if you're in one versus knowing if you're in the other.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's draw a distinction to between the kind of the pure strain of taking the mind as the path, settling the mind as natural state, that just straight scoop with no variation. In that practice, there you are, you're the falcon kiting into the wind and you're really interested in and focusing on whatever's coming up. That's prime. Now, from what perspective? From, of course, holding your own ground. But you're really attending to something. You're attending to that space. That space is your object of mindfulness. Whatever arises in that space is your object of mindfulness. You're monitoring the flow with introspection. So whatever thoughts, images, emotions, and so forth arise, you really are interested. And you are attending to them because you came to this theater to watch this show. Okay? And bear in mind, your seat is resting in your own, in your own space. Right? But this is what you're focusing on. Right? And so there you are. And so as they arise from moment to moment, that really is where your keen interest is focused. And whether they're long, they're short, gnarly, soft, gentle, whatever, that's it. Right? So that's the practice. You're very familiar with it. Now, when we see pensioner Buche, Starting out, now this is really, the emphasis is on you resting in that awareness of awareness, that luminous and cognizant nature of awareness. That's the primary focus. But he's giving you this out. Instead, if, you, if, you don't like, if you're not so drawn to the yang approach of snipping, 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 you know, a bit more active, a bit assertive. You like the more passive, the more yin approach. I'm in, uh, inserting these terms, but I think they're appropriate. If you're more drawn to the yin approach, then when the thoughts, images, and so forth come up, you simply note them. But that's it. That's it. Nothing more. You just note them. And then these pass right on through. But overwhelmingly, what's filling your awareness is the main show, and when that is just awareness of awareness. But when something pokes its head in, you don't snip it, you simply note it. And then watch itself dissolve. Right? But it's just a simple, brisk noting. But what are you primarily focusing on? Awareness of awareness. That's where you're that's where you're grounded.
1: So it's almost like if, if there was someone sitting in front of you talking and you, you weren't you were there but you weren't with them at all, you were just thinking, you'd be in the space of your mind. And then if you went past that person and then went past the thought, then you'd be in awareness of awareness.
0: I wouldn't put it out that way. Your, your fingers were coming out, out. Then you'd be in the space of the mind. Yeah. So once again, your your question really was about the distinction between attending to the space of the mind and awareness of awareness, and the space of the mind. Bear in mind is a sign. The space of the mind has characteristics, and they're not the characteristics of consciousness. But the spa- they're the characteristics of the dhammadata, when you start the, the relative dhammadhatu, the domain of mental events, as you clean away the conceptual configuration. Or structuring of that space of experience, you clean away the scales almost, almost like if you have a fish knife, and you clean away those scales and you get down to the fillet, you know, or the bare bones, if you like. Then that's the alaya, that's the substrate, right? But it, the substrate has qualities. It's three dimensional. It's it's vacuous. Um, it's transparent, and so forth. Whereas three dimensional awareness is not three dimensional. Has no dimension at all. Awareness is not vacuous. I mean, it's empty of inherent nature, but that's the vacuity. This should be very clear. The, vac- the emptiness in the sense of the absence of appearances of the substrate, that's not shunyata. That's not empty emptiness. Shunyata. Shunyata is emptiness of inherent nature. This is just empty of appearances, like an empty can. Okay? And so the substrate is empty of appearances where the awareness is full of light. But, of course, it's not white light as in bright yellow, green, or anything like that. It's luminous, it is, but just by nature. Clear, and I don't have an objection to the translation which is completely literal, clear light, because clear in this context could be interpreted quite rightly as clear as in devoid of any appearance, any shape, form, and so forth, and it is light because it, it illuminates. It illuminates, and therefore it's clear, devoid of appearances, shape, color, and so forth, but it's a light because it illuminates all appearances and it illuminates itself. So, so now with few words, s- the substrate, the space of the mind, is something you attend to. Your attention has a vector to it. You're going from here to there. Awareness of awareness, there's no vector. There's no directionality. And what you're aware of is just awareness itself, which has no locality and no dimension, no size, not three-dimensional, and so forth. Okay? So stay home. When you're doing this practice of shamatha without a sign, stay home. Don't venture out even to the space of vacuity. Just stay home. Okay? Good. Okay, off to Danny. Thank you. As I told you, I was now sitting a long time in the cinema, uh, staring at the blockbuster, The Rising of Alaya, When getting in there, um, what happens to introspection? I I feel like somehow the balance between introspection and knowing goes in favor to knowing. Mm -hmm. So it's less an active introspection. Does that mean that introspection dissolves into the alaya or is knowing finally ripa? In the teachings on awareness of awareness or shamatha without a sign, the the term introspection doesn't seem, in my limited experience, doesn't seem to crop up so much. Uh, and I, I've mentioned this before, but I'll reiterate it because it's it's subtle. And that is for other practices, even including attending to the thoughts and images that arise, right, what you're attending to is something other than your own awareness. You're attending to appearances to your awareness, but they're not the same as awareness. There's something other. You're attending them, so there's a vector, right? But as you're attending to them, then you really must be monitoring that to-ness, that directionality, that, or I think, it's actually, it is a philosophical term, intentionality, that there's a content of your attention to which you're focusing your awareness, that is the referent of your attention, or the object of your attention, and introspection is monitoring the way you're engaging with that, whether you're losing it by implosion falling into laxity, dullness, and sleepiness, where you're just kind of like spacing in, losing it that way, or you're losing it by being deflected off into excitation by thought and so forth and so on. So introspection has that orthogonal approach coming in on the vector and then recognize as swiftly as possible whether either laxity or excitation have arisen, and then you apply the antidote. Well, in an awareness of awareness, there's no vector. There's no rope. We call it the rope of mindfulness. Right? That's a classic metaphor. The rope of mindfulness. You take the wild elephant of your mind, the stake of your meditative object, and you tether your mind to the meditative object with a rope of mindfulness. That's classic. Classic, classic, all the way back to India, a long time ago. Tibetan didn't have elephants. And so but in awareness of awareness, there's no rope. There's no vector. There's no connect there's no connection to something other than itself. You're just staying home. So it's the stake. It's the stake, being aware of being a stake. No? And so that being the case, if you're right there, if you're doing the practice, then I give this analogy. It's not very good, but it's maybe not terrible. And that it's that's a, a cat crouched six inches away from a mouse hole on the side of a, you know, like in a cartoon, little side of the wall. And the cat's right there. Single-pointedly focused on the mouse hole. Right? So as soon as a mouse crops up, or a little fluff of laxity, a little bit of mist of laxity, or a mouse of excitation. Well, gosh, how can, it, how can the, the cat not notice? Because that's all it's gazing at. It's gazing just, it's single-pointedly focusing on the mouse hole. So anything that crops through there, the cat's going to get it, unless it just fell asleep. Right? So there you are. You're resting right in the, in the awareness of awareness, which is kind of like the mouth. Your awareness like the mouth from which all the thoughts, emotions, and so forth emerge. But you're gazing right at the mouth. So how can they possibly get by your gaze unless you just lose it? Right? And so this is why there's kind of no orthog- orthogonality to it. Now, does this mean that therefore introspection is not needed if you're practicing awareness of awareness? No. And that is, there still has to be some quality control. And that is, why you're practicing awareness of awareness, I think as we all know, it is possible to be carried away by thoughts. But that means you got really sloppy there because you just weren't watching the mouse hole at all. And then you're off gazing in the sky and the mouse comes out and starts chewing on your tail. Yeah. Gnarly mice. And so you still need it. But insofar as you're practicing correctly, you hardly need it because you're right there. They have a, just a hard time getting by you, okay? And then when Padmasambhava introduces this method of oscillation into the observer, into the agent, then really, if you're doing that, they have hardly any chance to get in. Because when you're probing in and when you're really arousing your attention, sharpening it up, intensifying, focusing, concentrating inwards, boy, they can't, they can't even peep a nose out because you're coming right in there, like you know, like the mouse just coming in, or like the cat coming, mm, like, the, you know, here's the nose and here's the mouse hole you know, really so close. they they can't get anything out. But then as soon as you're releasing, then if they come out, they're already swept away by the breeze. Because there you are releasing into space with no object. Well how how are they going to get to any tether, any any grasp on you when you're just going when the wind's blowing the other way? They got nothing to hold on to. Right. And so with that inversion and that release, it's really hard. That's why he speaks of these two methods, that this, this is a natural antidote to laxity and excitation, right? So that's why. So it's still, ne- it's still needed, but the, uh, but the awareness is so muscular and, it, and the focus is so much on that orifice from which distracting thoughts emerge that it's harder for them to get out. If they do, then of course you need introspection, okay? Good. Anybody on this side of the room? Anything okay? I will go to Michael first.
2: Uh, during, during uh, awareness of awareness the practice, the last week uh, always come come up the same mantra. So, Became um, the same a mantra.
0: Mantra, mantra, mantra. Yes.
2: I mean, a mantra is good, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> practicing uh, awareness of awareness, and uh, it's strange for me to kick it out or snip it out because it's a mantra. So I push yeah. it a bit to the side, but it comes always back and yeah, yeah. I find myself well. reciting the mantra. And,
0: Sure. Um, the mantra mind. The mantra is not a sentient being. You know? And part of Dharma practice really is to be able to pick up one method and then set it down and pick up another method and then set that down. So if you're pr- taking refuge, then at that time you're not thinking about something else. You're not just following your breath, for example. And so forth. So this is part of the, the same le surunga, it's called in Tibetan, making your mind serviceable. So that... Uh, you know, when you want your mind to do one thing, then it does that. You want your mind to do something else, then it does that. Uh, and so when the mantras come in here, uh, in this practice of awareness of awareness, with no disrespect, because it's just... No, no, I would say that the Buddhists will not be offended. You know? if Either way, as soon as the... Let's say it's om hum, and it comes om, and then... Or it goes, oh. <laughs> you know? Just snip it. Snip it because you know you're not doing it out of disrespect. There's no lack of devotion here, no lack of faith or reverence or anything like that. Simply now is the time for this, for practice without signs, practice without signs. Most practices, taking refuge, bodhicitta and so forth, are with signs. But this is part of the full repertoire of wisdom and skillful means. So there's that way, or if the mantra comes through, just let it through, but, but just like any other thought, just let it dissolve of its own accord, yeah. Give it no effort, no, and just don't give it any, any, any energy either to prolong it or to dismiss it. No. Okay. Go over to the left side. Anything's still over here? Back to Gudo, and then I'll try to give short answers so we can get more people.
2: Um, I'm a little confused by some of the terminology. Um, so awareness is non-local. Right. But then we're instructed to uh, direct the locus of our awareness to our heart?
0: At one point is a preliminary exercise, yes. And the, and the reason for that is very clear. And that is when you're... Let's just run through the drill quickly. When you're, when you're fully engaging with your coarse mind, your psyche, the pranas that are associated with mind or with awareness, they congeal up in the head, up here in the forehead chakra. So we really feel we're up here. When we are dreaming, those pranas associated with mind... In the th- they, they converge at the throat chakra, right? When you fall deep asleep, or for that matter when you achieve shamatha, or for that matter when you die, go comatose, faint, then the pranas associated with the mind, they converge at the heart chakra. Okay? So, wherever we focus the attention within the body, pranas converge there. That, that's, that includes your little pinky, your kneecap, your forehead, anywhere else. You just focus, and the, the more powerful your samadhi is, then it's like a big magnet. And it really pulls those pranas into that area. So as you become more and more adept at this practice, if you then imagine kind of stepping into the elevator, if you think you're located up in the head, you step into the elevator and push two floors down. Okay, four, four, uh, you know, next four down being the throat, and the next one down being the, the, the heart. If you do that, and you do it with a lot of samadhi, then in so doing, you're drawing the pranas right into the heart chakra, and that's going to empower your practice, so you more swiftly dissolve your whole mind into substrate consciousness is your awareness literally located inside the center of your chest no are the pranas associated with substrate consciousness located in in the, are the do they converge in the heart chakra yes because the pranas have location
2: okay but that, wouldn't that then be practicing with a sign
0: for the short time for the short time as expedient means yeah that's why that's not the full practice of, of having that sense of i am located here but it's still, I regard all of those exercises, the inversion, the release, and all of that, and up and down, right, left, and down, and, into the, and then expansion. I re- refer that it is really like warming up before you run a, run a marathon. And you may want to spend a lot of time warming up because it's really good for the body. I mean, warming up, that's really good exercise. Running a marathon is also good exercise. There are different types of exercise, right? And so doing those, it expands the mind. You're developing the suppleness of your attention. You do it, the pliability and so forth, the clarity, the stability, it's, it's, all, it's all good. It's all on the same agenda. But when you're, when you're ready to head on to the marathon, that's when it gets real simple. And then all notion of locality, you just release it, because all notions of locality is an appearance. And that's when you release it. Yeah. And that's why <laughs> it's the only place, only that one text, Padmasambhava's text, Natural Liberation, only place I've seen that. But I was taught that. That was part of the oral transmission I received from Gattro Rinpoche. Found it very helpful. So I keep on passing it on. But from all the other sources, including ones taught by Gattro Rinpoche, and Geshurapton, and His Holiness and Gyan Lam there's none of that. It's just boom, there's a, here's, here's the marathon, <coughs> start, and there you go. OK? Okie dokie, off to Quinn.
2: Before being introduced to Pension Lama's methods of yes. dismissing thoughts, right, uh, the practice of awareness of awareness I was doing was fully engaging with the object of awareness and trying to let the mind and all the other sense faculties dissolve as much as possible. Sure, And in that way, the, the mind would be quite... Quite still, and yes. I would just have awareness. Quite so. And so it wasn't even a consideration for me to to flick thoughts away, or. But
0: well, um, what would you do at that time when you, before you were introduced to Benjamin is one page, uh, when thoughts, images, memories, and so forth came up, uh, what what would you do? What would be your response, or would you not even notice them?
2: I would snip them. You would. I would cut them. I would. You would dismiss them. Yeah. them quickly. Yeah. I, yeah. That, so th- that,
0: then we had that. We had that. Um, we, mm-hmm. we, I introduced that earlier, the dual the dual uh, parable. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, yeah, you've mentioned that. Yeah, that was previously, Sure. Yeah. Um, but now it seems to be introduced more as a practice, like the thoughts you say are very useful and necessary to uh, develop vividness. Useful so
0: you, both ways, but both ways. That is, if you like the if you the other earlier method worked for you, you enjoyed it, you felt familiar with it, confident in it, stick with it, because the thoughts are still useful, because there you are flicking away. First, they're coming in like snowballs, and then they're coming in like snowflakes, you know, the, the, in terms of going from coarse to subtle. And so you're going to be able to hone just by that immediate release, 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 that little flicking, that tiny little gesture to dismiss them. You will increase the vividness. They will be the whetstone. They're still useful, right? So you can continue with that if you find it helpful, because some people find that just a bit too abrupt, a bit too aggressive, a bit too assertive a bit too disturbing to keep on flick, 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 and they'd rather just be resting in the awareness of awareness, and if thought comes by, just let it zing right through, noting it, but not attending to it. Go ahead.
2: And the other aspect, sometimes the I do notice some very subtle mental events, yeah. which are not like an archer firing arrows. Rather, he has a water hose, and he's just spraying Uh So it can't be. It's like a continuous flow of very quiet thoughts. Uh Um, They don't really. They're they're so closely packed together. They they end where the next one begins, and they Uh come very quickly. And so they don't really distract me because they're very quick. Uh, It almost feels like just some movement inside my Mm -hmm. perception. Mm -hmm. And if I look very closely, I can see. Oh, look! There was a quick memory, like very small. Or sometimes it just feels like vibration, where yeah. they're not identifiable yeah. as any. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Songkaba
0: again. Songkaba in his presentation on shamatha, where he simply mentions awareness of awareness, but he's really primarily focusing on the classic technique of looking at a Buddha image, attending to a Buddha image. He says there, and I've mentioned it before, that as you're in this practice, where there again there's a vector coming back to Danny's Danny's question, where there is a vector you're attending to that and you're monitoring monitoring the flow with a, uh, introspection. He said, on occasion, a thought will be, he says, I can't remember quite the Tibetan, but I know the English translation because I translated it. And that is, you'll note that a thought is about to arise, even before it's arisen. It hasn't, even, it, it hasn't even articulated itself. It hasn't even said anything, but you see this surge. And the image, whenever I refer to this, the same image always comes to mind because I think it's kind of useful. And that is if you're a fisherman or just simply watching a still pond, let's throw out the fisherman, but just watching a still, still pond, very glassy, and a fish like a trout comes right up towards the surface of the water, but doesn't quite break it. You'll find the water, because of the cohesiveness of the water, the surface tension, the water rises a little bit, but, but the fin doesn't break through, right? And so the, the fish would be like your thought. You kind of you know it's about to, uh, but then it doesn't. You know, but you even note that, that's subtle introspection. So all of these are be to be noted. If you want to stick with plan A, and that is just nipping them, snipping them as soon as they are, then keep on, keep on snipping them. Because you're, you don't want to be complacent about even a murmuring. A murmuring is, well, never mind, couldn't be that bad. A murmuring. The murmuring is still an invasion. It's an intrusion into resting in the awareness with no appearances at all, with no, atten- with no attention to, no awareness of, no deliberate awareness of any appearances at all. So that would seem like a stream as you enhance the temporal vividness, the temporal acuity of your awareness. You'll move from the realm of field to the realm of quanta and you'll see that they actually what seemed like smooth like spaghetti is actually composed of a lot of very brief bursts, little pulses, pulses, pulses. If you blur the focus a little bit, it seems like smooth, continuum. Sharpen it up, increase the, the magnification, and it's, it's all bursts. Okay? Okay, good. Oh, we still have a bit of time, good. We're big. I'm gonna just go to the left and then I'll come back to the right again. I'm just trying to be even as I can. Sally had her hand up earlier. Go on, Sally. And if it is a follow-up, that'll be fine. Go ahead, John. Just a,
1: a quick one. Um, it's just terminology. I think I've heard you use awareness and consciousness synonymous. Like, that, they could, can they be the same, mean the same? Yeah.
0: I'm translating when, whenever I'm not just goofing around and joking, then everything I'm saying can be translated back into Tibetan. Okay? And so when I'm saying awareness, I'm always translating that from the Tibetan term Rikpah. Rikpa has two meanings, and they're very distinct. Rikpa is just awareness. I'm aware of the peach color of your blouse. Well, sure, I sure, certainly not. When I'm doing that, I'm certainly not aware of non local, atemporal, you know, and so forth. I'm not aware of pristine awareness. I'm just I'm aware of the pink color of your blouse, peach color, right? And so, just awareness. So, when Rikpa means that, and that's just part of Buddhist psychology, then that Rikpa is synonymous with the, the term shepa, which I translated as consciousness. So awareness and shepa, awareness and consciousness, interchangeable, synonymous, okay? In Tibetan, and therefore when I'm translating as well. Now we also know that on the Dzogchen level and so forth, now rikpa means, oh, now rikpa is pristine awareness, and then we, even though in Tibetan it's the same term, in English, for the sake of clarification, so people don't keep on having to ask, did you mean mean the ultimate or the relative, ultimate relative? Okay, whenever I say pristine awareness, I'm always referring to rikpa as in... You know, the ground awareness, the ultimate ground awareness. But apart from that, yes, awareness and consciousness are interchangeable. They're synonymous.
1: Thank you. And mind, like we... There's coarse mind. Yep. But awa- awareness is something conscious of mental events. that. It's sort awareness... of getting... Disting, distinguishing mind when you say mind. Right. Do you right. understand what I'm getting at?
0: And then, just well, pretty much invariably, whenever I use the mind, I'm referring to it's a straight translation of, of chitta in Sanskrit or sem in Tibetan—and pretty much everybody translates it as mind. I mean, there may be an odd translator here, here, there who doesn't, but almost all of us do. It's good as any; it's not bad. And in both contexts, then, in in, the, in Buddhist psychology in Tibetan, and over into English, this is an umbrella term. It's an umbrella term. So there are many events that are taking place in the mind. Okay, okay, they're thought. Oh you, mean, oh, you mean thoughts, images, attention, memory, fantasies, so yeah. yeah, those are all mental events. Uh, attending to those, we'll say that, well, that's attending to the mind. That's attending to the events arising in the space of the mind. And so we're using it in that way. But now, when we come back to this, simple, this very simple term, awareness or consciousness, um, let's take the, the term consciousness, and now Tibetan, shepa. Whereas mind goes on the course level. Psyche, and there are conscious and unconscious events, both in, in Freudian psychology as well in Buddhist psychology. The, the, the unconscious one are called balanyawa, balanyawa, they're latent, they're beneath the threshold, but they're still active. So, this, was, this has been around for a very long time, much before Freud. Um, so, this coarse mind, that's what the psychologists study, we'll call it psyche. And then subtle mind, what's a, syn- a synonym of subtle mind? Mia, in terms of our terminology here, subtle mind. Is equivalent to anything familiar? And if you get the wrong answer, it doesn't make any difference. I'm just calling on you. Substrate
2: consciousness. Exactly Self-strate right.
0: Consciousness. Exactly right. Yes. Subtle mind is. Give me five. Uh, yes, exactly right. Uh, subtle mind is substrate consciousness, is subtle continuum of mental consciousness. Okay? And then the very subtle mind, or oh, Lakshmi. What's a very subtle mind? What's that equivalent to? Rikpa, she's already got it. Yep, pristine awareness. Okay, you people have been around for at least eight weeks, or at least seven, let's say. So there it is. So, But this is straight Tibetan. Semrakpa tamo shint tramo. That's exactly it. They're using that same word. They're using the word mind, very subtle mind, chitta, for rikpa. Okay, well, okay, they can call it what they like. But that's, what, that's how it's used. Whereas shepa, going back to the word, and it's jnana, jnana in Sanskrit. Um, this now we see how, how slender it is, how simple. And that is, okay, you say, well, what's the definition of shepa, of consciousness? Oh, that which is luminous and cognizant, has two defining characteristics. So that's it. Whereas mind has memories and imagination and dullness and mental afflictions and virtuous states and big repertoire. It's a zoo, you know, the zoo of the mind. Whereas awareness is not a zoo. That's just crystal clear. It's luminous, cognizant, that's it. Okay? Good? Thanks. Okay, over to the right, and I think it is indeed, Maria.
3: Yes. Um. I find this awareness of awareness uh, very difficult to practice, as I, I mentioned to you. Yeah. But uh, to understand, because in Buddhism, subject and object emerge together, right? So awareness okay. is not is the subject. Yes. We are always aware of something. Yes. So, we, and we also have the, the word as a noun, so awareness as a noun. So, right, as if awareness could exist without a subject.
0: Uh, without, without a subject or without we, an object?
3: Without, without an object, I mean. Right. So, when it comes to awareness of awareness, um, so I try to practice, and if it, it sounds, I'm, I think I'm doing it wrong, um, uh-huh. but... Uh, um, when I try to, to look at, um, let my, my mind spacious, and I only, I only can do this when I'm really uh, settled in my breathing, yeah. and then my mind becomes with no thoughts for a while, and then I say, okay, that's the space. But when, as soon as something comes and I cut, and say, I'm aware of that. So I'm aware three, two, twice, so I'm not, uh, uh, it's just being mindful that I, I have, this thought is coming. I'm not sure. If it, is it possible? How come is it possible mm-hmm. the subject being, and what is the object? Yeah, very good. Very good. Very clearly articulated.
0: And when you're aware, when you, and you so rightly said, to engage in this practice of taking the mind as the path or suddenly in the mind, is natural. you've got to be relaxed. You've got to have your body loose. You have to have that breathing flowing. You have to have a kind of a looseness, a sense of ease in the mind. Otherwise, every thought, every memory was going to snag you. It's going to pull you away and you just sit there with a wandering mind and daydreaming. And I know people have tried without good preparation. I remember years ago when Gautra was teaching this and I was translating for him, there came one woman, an old student of Gautra and she came to me as the interpreter. I was the one that was you know available. And she had tears in her eyes. She was crying. She said, I tried that practice. Of, she's talking about settling the mind as natural state. She said, I could never do it. Never once could I do it. Every thought that came up, it just grabbed me, and I was off going there and going there and going there. I could never observe the thought. Yeah, quite understandably. She was too tight. One has to relax. Hey, mellow out, chill, you know? But that's not quite your question. Your question. Is all right, but we can, as you you have, when you really are mellow, you can observe a thought arising here, an image arising there, and then you have a subject and you have an object. That makes good sense. And you're also quite right in Buddhist psychology, if there's a subject, there's got to be an object. And you know how? In the same way, if there's left, there's got to be right. If it's up, you can't have up without down. Up without down doesn't mean anything. So these are called, and they're called todel in Tibetan. They're, they're, they're mutually interdependent. There's no yes without no. There's no good without bad. There's no male without female. If there's only male, female doesn't mean anything. But then the, if there's no females, male doesn't mean anything. It just means you're a person or whatever, one of those creatures that has no, no gender. right? And so there are a lot of things like that. And subject doesn't mean anything unless there's object. And object doesn't mean anything unless there's subject. You can just say entity. Okay, it's an entity. But as soon as you say object, you've got to have subject and vice versa. And so that's what you're pointing to. So there's two ways out of this conundrum. One is purely experiential, and the other one is conceptual, and they're both useful. Because we're intelligent people. We're conceptual people. We use thoughts. We use our intelligence, our reason. And we don't want to, you know, put a cork in it and say, shut up, you're not welcome here. Buddhism is a very intelligent system. And so I'll give you, the, I'll give, give you the, what I believe is an intelligent answer first, and then I'll give you the pragmatic one, or the practical experiential one, and then we'll practically and experientially go off and have some food. Okay? So the first one. Is there an object in the practice of awareness of awareness? The answer is yes, there is. It's got to be an object. Because otherwise there's no subject. What's the object? Awareness. But now how can, how can one moment of awareness be its own object? And it can't. Not in Buddhism, not in Buddhist psychology. At least not Madhyamaka, middle way. So I'll just stick Stick with what is widely accepted in Tibet. One one moment can't be its own object. Because this is like the finger can't touch itself. You know, the tip of the finger can't touch itself. You know? (laughs) Can't be fast enough. You know? And so... But if we consider, going right back to, to Quinn's point, if we consider that awareness is not just a smooth, unbroken continuum but as a staccato burst, a sequence of bursts, of moments, of pulses. Like sticca- like, like that, rather than mm, but like that. If it's arising very, very quickly, like, oh, what would we say, 600 times per second, then the second moment can take as an object the immediately prior moment. So this is the, this is the understanding. In this practice, the awareness you're aware of is awareness that just passed. You're just looking over your shoulder. But you're going through time looking over your shoulder. And so it's very, very short-term memory. But you do have an object. So there's a very slender temporal lapse, extremely short. And it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. But it never fuses into just one, one moment of awareness being aware of that same moment. So there is a subject object in it. But it's not looking at some other object outside of the continuum of consciousness. It's looking at consciousness as in the immediately preceding moment. Okay? So it's an ongoing flow of extremely short-term recollection or short-term memory. So that's the conceptual understanding. And so there's still a subject and object. But as you, as you imagine, especially when continuity comes in, that you're not distracted for like five seconds at a time. So there you are, each one looking over its shoulder at the immediate preceding one. But the immediate preceding one is so similar to the next one, it's so similar to the next one, so similar to the next one, that it really feels like, hey, I'm just aware of being aware because you know, there's homogeneity. Whereas if I were to look at your blouse and then look at Bruce, Bruce's shirt and then look at the, the cell phones and then look over at Marley, then they're all different and they would, there would be a lot of heterogeneity, right? So it would be different, different, different. But here it's same, 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 same. So it just feels like an ongoing flow of awareness, of awareness, and each burst of awareness is very similar to the last one, because the last one was also looking over its shoulder, and, and that one was looking over its shoulder and its shoulder, so it seems quite smooth, right? So that's the conceptual answer. To my mind, I'm satisfied with that. I find it very smart. Uh, We can can extrapolate, oh, we're already over, extrapolate a little bit with emotions. It gets so interesting. I find this fascinating. And I've talked about it, thought about it for decades, and it's still, I find it so fascinating. But it's also true for desires and emotions, these other subjective impulses that come up. By the time you're aware of an emotion, it's the emotion that just happened, not the emotion that's happening right now, it's the emotion that just just look over your shoulder, oh, there was depression, oh, there was fear, oh, there was anger, oh, there was this, but it's one that just passed. It's very short, and likewise, um, you know, desires. Desires always are for something. By the time you're aware of the desire, it's the one that just vanished. You just look over the shoulder, because the desire was focusing on what it was wanted. I want, I want some food. Oh, I'm aware that I want food, but when I'm aware that I want food, I'm no longer desiring food, I'm attending to the desire that just passed. So it interrupts the flow of the emotion and the desire. Having said all of that, that was a conceptual response, and I think it is worthwhile, otherwise I wouldn't have spent the time. Uh, but the, the experiential one. So now let's all join in on this one. It's going to be really short and really easy. And it's a question, it's a real question. And it is right now. Are you aware? of whether you're conscious or whether you're unconscious. You're aware that you're conscious, and it's, that's it. It's just that. It's just that. So even without that conceptual response and explanation, I came, I, and even if I said, oh, gosh, you got me stumped. I don't know how it's possible. I have no conceptual answer at all. Well, whatever. You're still aware right now that you're not unconscious, that you're conscious. And it's just resting in that utter simplicity of an awareness that was already there because you didn't suddenly, freshly become aware that you're not unconscious. When I pose the question, you were already aware of it. And that's why we say, we say, I say, in this practice, we're shedding the dead skin or the accumulations like the barnacles on a ship, the accretions, you know. We're shedding the accretions of all the other things we know. And there's many things worth knowing. But in this practice, we scrape all that off, we turn our attention away from it, away from it, until we see the kind of awareness that was always there. As I'm aware of your shawl right now, I'm not aware of exactly what Regina is reaching over to touch. I can see some movement there, but I, I can't see it. And now I'm aware. There was some movement there of hands, I believe. You know, but, now, but now I'm not aware of Maria. Just, I have no awareness of Maria. She's... No, I can. Oh, tiny bit of red. Now I'm not aware of a Marie at all, you know. So that stopped, and so we're aware of this, but then not aware of it, and aware of this, and not aware of that, and so forth and so on. What's well, the common denominator? The awareness of awareness is always quietly there, and so we're scraping off everything else. So as I, if I should now, right, right now, go into awareness of awareness, I lost awareness of you immediately. You just, you just evaporated. That is, of course, you didn't. But the appearance of you did, my engagement with you, my knowing of you did, that evaporated. That comes and goes. But I just released all that. And then that which was standing nakedly and was there all along, that's where we rest, alone and naked, holding our own ground, standing firm. OK? Very cool. Good. So <laughs> see you around.